All right, the scripture from this morning is in John 1. Uh, we are in a series on 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. We'll see how much of those three chapters, they're not, or three books, they're not very long. 1st John is the longest of them. We'll see how far we get before Advent. Uh, Advent will be here before you know it, so we'll, we'll keep plowing through. This morning, uh, we're going to read verses 1, chapter 1, verse 5, through chapter 2, verse 2. This is the message that we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. I saw someone sent me a little blurb. It was uh, sarcastic, but they said this month is Pastor Appreciation Month, so they sent me a little thing. They said, well, here's what the perfect pastor does. The perfect pastor always preaches sermons that are no longer than 10 minutes, and he talks about sins in a way that conveys the general message of sin but never offends anybody. And then it goes on for a whole long list of things that the perfect pastor does. So this morning... You're going to get more than 10 minutes, so I've already, you know, checked the box of not being a perfect pastor, so we're just going to throw that all out. Um, but this, this is a passage about sin. Uh, for John, as we talked about last week, is writing a letter uh, to this, we don't know if it's one church or a group of churches, but they've been through a tough time, they've been through a church split, and, and so we can see in here that, the, that John is both kind of wearing his pastor hat and trying to comfort the people, but he's also kind of wearing his prophet hat. And, and pointing the finger at the people that left. And he's doing all that at, at the same time. Um, so we'll, we'll look at this and we'll, we'll try to understand what uh, John was saying to the people in the original context and then figure out, okay, what, what are some of the takeaways that we have uh, that we can take for us and what we can live out? So we're, this, and again, this is the last week we looked at was the introduction. So he's kind of covering the whole breadth of what he was going to talk about. And here he jumps into the specifics. So he starts off right away with this teaching on sin and, and being sinless and having sin and, and all, all that. So we, can, we know that there are some issues going on in that community about how people understood sin. And he starts in verse 5, or verse 6. Uh, he says, If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not have the truth. So we can see right away, John is addressing an issue in the community that people are saying one thing and doing another thing. So it sounds like a fully human problem. I know no one in this room has ever struggled with that or even come into, you know, dealt with anyone who kind of says X and does Z, right? That's not normal, is it? No, it's very normal. We, we, that's, it's a normal thing for humans. And, and so uh, the word that John uses here is walk. He's saying they're saying one thing, but they walk in the darkness. 
Their walk is in darkness. And we, we understand here that this is not literal. This doesn't mean that they're just walking around and they're not lighting their candles and they're bumping into things in, in their ancient abodes 2,000 years ago where these people would have been uh, living. No, it's, this is a metaphor. Walk is a, a metaphor for life. And that's a very very Christian term. We, we, we use walk as a lot. Uh, we talk about our walk with the Lord. We have hymns about walking with the Lord. Um, but it's, it's also it's a very biblical thing. It's a very Jewish thing. The ancient uh, people of Israel, uh, this, this language comes through much in the Old Testament. That's why we chose Psalm chapter 1 uh, for the call to worship. I didn't, it wasn't just being lazy and just saying, okay, let's just do Psalm 1. That's the first one. It's easy to read. But it says, people, you know, blessed is the man who does not what? Walk in the way of sinners. That means your, your life, that your life should reflect uh, what you believe. You can say what you want all day long, but if your walk, if your life doesn't show it, then, then it's, 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 that's the issue. And what we see here in 1 John chapter 1, verse 6, he's saying people are saying one thing, but they're walking in darkness. There's a difference. That your walk, your life, is not showing the same thing that your talk is. And we see this all through Scripture. We see it in the Psalms, Psalm 1, uh, the very famous Psalm, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Sometimes our life, our walk, takes us through very difficult times, times that we face death or we're surrounded by death and, and all that. So we, we know that our walk takes us through difficult times. And in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul uses this term too. It's not just John, but in Paul, throughout his writings, but in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, is probably one of the more famous ones. He says, as a prisoner of the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Now that translation is different because it says live a life. But maybe you remember growing up, it says walk worthy. Walk worthy of the calling that you have received. So modern translators say, okay, walk. Maybe, maybe modern North Americans don't know what that means. So we say live a life. Whenever you see walk in scripture, it's, it's talking about your life to live a life, to walk what you're speaking. And maybe I'm wrong, but I think this translates pretty well. Right? Some biblical concepts don't translate too well into modern culture. Like later on in the passage, he starts talking about the blood of Jesus that purifies us. You know, in our culture today, that seems kind of icky and we don't, that does, it doesn't correlate too well. Uh, but walking, you know, living the walk, that, that, that works pretty well. And maybe I've just grown up in the church so long that, that I think it makes sense. But I, I see this in athletics. You see it in, in the job world, in the career world. You know, there's always people saying, you know, you can talk the talk, but can you walk the walk? Right? There's the, I, the, the phrase, talk is cheap, that applies everywhere. Um, you know, I was just telling some people, this is the first year I won't be coaching basketball for some time. Uh, but you always, you know, any sports arena, you always have people that talk a big game, right? You know, say, well, I can do this, I can do this. I averaged so many points last year, I can hit so many threes. And as a coach, you sit there and like, okay, that's nice. Keep talking. Let's, let's see what happens when we start running some drills. And once the kid, when you start running some drills, that's the walk, right? And then you know, like, all right, this kid, this kid can, do, can do some things. He has some potential. He can play. You don't, as a coach, you don't care one lick about what comes out of your eighth grade boy's mouth. That's probably, teachers probably feel the same way, and parents probably feel the same way as too, right? Talk is cheap. We know that to be true, and Scripture brings that out over and over again. In, in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus tells this parable. What do you think? 
There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. And the son replied, I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. But he did not go work. Which of these two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. And Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John, for John came to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe. So this whole thing about talking versus walking is of particularly importance amongst people of faith like us. Because we tend to, and especially me, you know, I'm, I'm hired to, to sit here and speak to you, words coming out of my mouth to talk for no less than 10 minutes a day, right? That's, but again, I'm probably getting close to my 10-minute limit here. You know, we, we, we talk a lot, but over and over again, Scripture and Jesus pulls us back and say, hey, words, words are not of no importance, they're significant, but your walk is the important thing. And so... John, here in his, in his kind of first, after the introduction, when he's talking to his people, right away he says, there's a separation in your lives between what you're saying and what you're doing. And he thinks that's the most important thing that he starts his letter with, is like, this is a big deal. This is intolerable within the Christian community, that the walk should line up with the talk. And so he starts this opening dialogue about sin. Sin in the Christian life. Now, it's interesting here that John, in, in verses, the verses that we're looking at this morning, he's not really so concerned about defining what sin is. Now, this is more talking about uh, the idea of sin as opposed to defining the what of sin. Now, the Apostle Paul, in his writings, he, he goes out of his way to define what sin is. You know, we have these sin lists and theological explanations that the Apostle Paul gives you know, if you like, you know, as, as children, we memorize the fruits of the Spirit. They probably do that in Bible memory now. But, you know, right before the fruits of the Spirit is one of these sin lists. And Paul does this in most of his letters. So, for Paul, for example, in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 to 20, he gives this whole list sexual morality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, John doesn't mention any of these, these things. He's not, talking, he's not trying to tell his people what sin is. He's talking more, you know, a, a level of, okay, when, I don't have to tell you what it is, but I'm telling you how to deal with this when you see it in your life. It's more of a, a how to deal as opposed to defining what this sin is. So he goes into this, and we see that he, he's addressing uh, kind of three different ideas that crop up. The, the first is the idea that sin, you know, you can become, you can overcome sin and live a sinless life. So we see that there are people within the Johannine community, um, that, that's a word in, in reading the commentary, Johannine, uh, so that's based on the word John. So this, this community that the book of First, Second, and Third John was written to is known as the Johannine community, because we don't know where they are. So the other books of the Bible is like Ephesians, Corinthians, we know where they were, so we say the Corinthian community, um, but the Johannine community, we don't know who they are, so we write, that's how they're addressed. So, um, so we know there's this idea, there's people in the community that, that are denying that they have sin. 
We also see, reading between the lines, that there are people struggling with sin. And they're feeling like they're overcome with sin. They don't know what to do with it. So John looks at both of those, and then he finally ends with a way, a healthy way, to deal with sin in our lives. So let's, let's look at those three. What happens when people deny the existence of sin? How, how to escape from being overcome from sin? And how to address it in a healthy way? So we see it right away in denying the existence. John is concerned about the people that are apparently teaching wrong about sin. So we have these people that have left the church. There's a, there's a schism. Now what we don't know is if there's still people within the church that are still thinking that they're sinless or if he's addressing only the people that left. But we know there's a group that are, that are within the, the, the church or outside the church that are claiming to live a sinless life. So I, I've, I've lived sinlessly. Now we know uh, John is not a fan of this way of thinking. He's trying to, he's, again, he's wearing his prophetic hat and saying, no, like, you can't do that. Uh, so we see that in verse 6, verse 8, and verse 10. So let's just take a look at those verses. So in, in verse 6 he says, If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live the truth. So he's saying there, if you say claim to have fellowship and live in perfection, but actually your life is showing darkness, that's a lie. And then in verse 8, he says, If we claim to be without sin... We deceived ourselves, and the truth is not within us. So again, we see the very clear uh, assumption there that there were people claiming to be without sin. And then again in verse 10, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word, in his word has no place in our, in our lives. Now, there have been different movements throughout the history of the church uh, and we can see this coming out. It was, it's, it's plagued us since the beginning, and it's, it's, it's among us now. There are people that believe that at conversion, sin is no longer a part of your life. Like when you've been washed in the blood, like we sang, and like what is talked about here, once that baptism happens, your life is regenerated and you live a perfect life. Now, we may all think, have these people actually lived? Like, what, what are they talking about? But that, that, is, that is, there are uh, people who defend that and, and, and understand that. I don't know how they deal with the words of John right here, uh, but that's, that's a reality. Um, and there are those uh, that I think are a little, bit easy, like a little bit easier to believe, but again, uh, I wouldn't subscribe to it because of what John is saying here, that it's not necessarily some like a miracle that happens at conversion that you live a sinless life, but the idea that perfection can be achieved. So we know that at, you know, at conversion, whenever that happens as a child or as an adult, you, know, you still have these habits and hang-ups and things that you bring with you. But over the course of a lifetime of, of walking with God, of studying His Word, of living in community, of being uh, having, you know, iron sharpening iron, but over a course of a lifetime, that you, you can achieve a, a state of sinlessness. That's a little bit more prevalent. There are, there are denominations that will even say, yeah, it is possible to, to achieve a state of sinlessness after X amount of years. Now, uh, I wouldn't subscribe to that because of what John says here, but I think there is a bit of truth to that. Not that we can achieve a state of sinlessness because we are all still human and we're all still uh, living in a fallen and broken world. And even if you uh, do make all the right choices, uh, the, the stain of sin is still among us. Um, but I do think there's a bit of truth to that in that a lifetime of obedience does conform us and does shape us and does bring us to a place where sin has much less power and sway over us. 
And I think we can just look around the room and see that. You know, some, someone who's, who's living a rough life and comes to Jesus and experiences conversion, you know, there's, there's a long road ahead of them of, of learning to walk with the Lord, of, of be, you know, conforming your mind and your body and everything, your actions to the Word. Whereas there's people in the room here that have probably been, that have been doing that for 70, 80 years, and they, they are at a spot where, no one in this room would claim to be sinless, I'm sure, but they're at a spot where they, they are walking very close to the Lord and that um, the, the sin that, is, that, is, that they have to work with is much less, um, what's the word I'm looking for, but they've, they've become much more Christ-like than the person who is immediately at conversion. Um, now, I say all that because I, I, I think we're tempted to think that there are people that can reach perfection. That's not true. They, the most saintly person in this room that you may look up to as a mentor who's studied the Word their whole life and lived a very good life, they, they still aren't perfect. There's no one in this room that is perfect. They have, they're further along in their walk than maybe you or I are, but they're not perfect. They're just closer to being a life in submission to Christ. So John is saying anyone who claims to be sinless, anyone who claims to be without sin, is making Christ out to be a liar. He's saying that, that you have no room for Christ's word in you. And so it's, it's very important. Again, I don't think this is something that we struggle with. It's not something that's a prevalent movement within our church or even in North America. And most people in, in most denominations that I know of have no problem saying, yeah, we're all sinners saved by grace. So it's not, it's not a real important thing at our time and our day. But I think it's good to remind that you know none of us are exempt from this. We all struggle with it. And I think the, the second part here is something that we may, may struggle with more in our day and age, and in our context, is this idea that we become overcome with sin, that we feel overwhelmed by sin, like there's nothing we can do that is so powerful that it's, that it's got its grip on us, and that there's nothing that we can do about it. So the one extreme is arrogance, that I'm perfect and I don't have any sin in my life, but the other extreme is a sense of hopelessness and despair that we have no power over what is the behaviors that are, that are happening in our lives. And we can see this in chapter 2, verse 2, that we get this kind of this, this, this um, change in tone from John. Um, no, 2, verse 1, I'm sorry. There's a change in tone. So he's, he's wearing this prophetic hat, if you will, where he's pointing out people, you know, if you claim to be of that sin, you're a liar, you're making Jesus to be a liar. So he kind of, you can kind of imagine John pointing his finger. And then in chapter 2, he puts his finger away, and you can see the change in language. My dear children. So now he's talking to the people, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. So we can see this kind of pastoral comfort that John offers. Yes, like you, you live a life in a fallen world, in a broken world. Yes, you, you are a sinful human being. You're a sinful person. You will sin. I'm writing this for you to encouragement so you don't live a life of sin, but you, you can't make it through life sinless. You just can't do it. And so I'm writing to comfort you so you don't feel the sense of overwhelming shame and, and, and fear and hopelessness when, when you do see something in your life that looks like darkness, when your walk doesn't, isn't a perfect walk, when your walk looks like a walk in darkness. Don't become overwhelmed by it. It's kind of, if you remember, this, this kind of goes back to a month ago when we were in our recovery month. That, that, that sense of overwhelming shame that's not a healthy sense. That's not a healthy thing to carry around with. If we if we uh, we sin and we, we have this 
fear and we panic. We have despair and we beat ourselves up and we always say, I'm worthless, I'm not good enough. We're all overcome with the shame. You know, those are cyclical feelings. John doesn't want his church, his people, to be, to be always cowering and feeling those things. Because he knows, like, like the author of the 12 steps knows, like, like Jesus knew, that if you live there, those are cyclical feelings. So if you live in a state of feeling overwhelmed and feeling shameful, that shame is just going to lead you to feeling uh, like I'm dirty and I'm worthless and I can't do right. And, and, and then you're going to fall into a cycle of living your life in that way. And John is saying, no, that's, that's not the life that was laid out for you. That's not the life that God has chosen for you. That's not the way that you have to approach life. Yes, you will sin. But when you sin, it doesn't, you don't have to be overwhelmed with the, the, with the shame that comes with it. And so he, he tells his people that, and then he moves into the healthy way to address sin, the healthy way to work through sin. So don't become arrogant and think that you're sinless and you've arrived at this plateau where you no longer need Christ. And don't become overwhelmed and, and, shame, and full of shame and hatred of yourself and loathing of yourself where you, you can no longer see yourself as, as a beautiful person created in God's image. John, John is saying to his people, don't live in either one of these extremes, but there's a healthy road that Christ has provided. And he says it three different ways in, in, the, in this short passage. So we see this. In verse 7. Verse 7 says, But if you walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with, with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, purifies us from all sin. So we see that, and then in verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And then in chapter 2, verse 2, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. So John is, is repeating himself over and over again. He wants us to get this idea. We don't need to be overwhelmed and overcome. That we have Jesus who, is, who has done in verse 2, he says, the, his atoning work. You know, he, he has done this for us so we don't need to feel overcome by sin. His blood was shed, shed that washes us, makes us pure as snow. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just. That's the character of God. God is faithful. No matter what it is, God is faithful. That's His character. And we see this all through the Old Testament. Even though there are times as vengeance, forgiveness is in God's character. That's what He does. He is full of grace and mercy. He is a forgiving and merciful God. And John is telling his people over and over again, if, if you sin, don't become overwhelmed Bring that to Jesus. Confess that, and you'll be washed and you'll be purified. That shame is not a burden you have to carry. You don't have to look at yourself that way because you aren't that way because you have been washed and you are now clean and pure and righteous in His sight. And this is all through Scripture, and it's been backed up by, by modern psychology and psychiatric care. You know, when you go in to see a counselor, even if it's not a Christian counselor, they'll, they'll encourage you to speak speak some of these things. Say them out loud. Confess, even, I don't know if they use confession language, but to tell your counselor these things. Because in speaking them and confessing them, even if it's not to Jesus himself, it's a healthy behavior. It takes some of the power of that shame away from us. Now, we have at our, uh, at our fingertips our Savior who takes that away from us and has promised to be faithful and just no matter what we say. All we have to do is confess. 
not try to earn anything, not try to, not try to be the perfect person, but to have that practice of confession. Confession is good for the soul. And we as a, a Mennonite church don't often have that worked into our practice. And in and, and the Catholic church, uh, whether you, you know, some people say this gets abused, but you know, they have confession. You can go in and have confession, and that's a healthy practice. We don't always have that. Uh, we're also not a liturgical church, so we don't have prayers of confession worked into our Sunday morning every Sunday. So we need to be a little more intentional about how, how we do this. The confession is not just a saying like it's good for the soul. It's what Jesus has said. If you confess, I'm faithful and just, and I will forgive uh, you your sins. So this morning, um, we will have a, a, a time of a prayer of confession. Um, I'll... Yeah, I want to first... Okay. Sorry. We'll first sing... Uh, how deep the Father's love for us. And then during the prayer time, there'll be a prayer of confession on the screen that we'll all read together. So you don't, you don't have to say anything personally and, and confess any, any of your deep, dark things. Um, but you do want to do that with Jesus. So I invite the musicians to come back forward. Uh, we'll sing how deep the Father's love for us. And then during the prayer and the offering time, I'll lead us through a prayer of confession.
What we'll do is, is read this prayer of confession collectively, so all, all of us read it together. I invite you to enter into it uh, as, as much as you can. And then after the prayer of confession, I will leave some time of silence, long enough for it to get a little uncomfortable. But I invite for you to, in that time of silence, that's the time for you to name and confess anything that the Spirit brings to you. And that's just between you and the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And feel free to name things to yourself, in, or in, not just yourself, but to God. You know, we're not asking anyone to speak out loud here. But name them with courage, knowing that God is faithful and just and will forgive your sins. And after a time of silence, I will read uh, a prayer of assurance and pardon. So let's read this together. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ. Have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. You are forgiven and washed clean by the blood of Christ. Amen.